Hi, welcome to Exit Point. This is Laurent Fratt and with me is Matt Blank. And today we're going to be speaking with Matthias Giraud, AKA Super Frenchie. Matt, let's tell the listeners what direction we're gonna be going in with this podcast today. Well, we're gonna start off by asking about the movie that he's got out right now called Super Frenchie. Uh, and anyone that wants to catch it, it's streaming on a lot of uh, different platforms, Google Play, YouTube, Amazon, iTunes. And it's also up on his website, superfrenchy.com. And this movie follows him for the last 10 years. You know, the documentary is uh, a decade plus of his life. So we'll be asking a lot of in-depth questions about that. And hopefully you guys can go out and check it out because I, I think it's an amazing play. Uh, and then we'll be delving into his personal life, you know, kind of getting to know him as a uh, jumper as well as him as a just a everyday human being. I think he's an incredibly interesting and inspirational character. And uh, following that, we'll also want to talk to him about what it's like to be a professional athlete because he's been making a living at a sport that is pretty small and it's pretty rare that somebody can do what he is doing. Uh, so we'd like to ask him, you know, how does he actually accomplish that? <laughs> Being a professional base jumper is kind of a, a really niche job title. You know him better than I do, though, uh, Lo. What do you uh, want to get into with him? Yeah, indeed. Uh, he's also overcome significant injury. You know, he's had some pretty gnarly accidents. And, uh, and through it, I think he's developed quite a deep philosophical side. So not only is he someone that is just full of stoke, but he is quite introspective. And uh, I think it makes for a very interesting combination of a person and uh, should make for a great conversation as well. Sweet. Well, with that, let's uh, welcome him to the podcast. So welcome to Exit Point, and uh, thanks for coming on and uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we've known each other for a really long time now, and, um, you know, uh, coincidentally, you were at the bridge when I made my first jumps. Yeah, I remember that day. It was pretty funny. You were there with a crew of people from Northern California, and... Uh, I was teaching a friend how to jump, and we just met at the bridge, and then I ended up being, yeah, a hug fest for a couple of days. It was really, really fun. Super fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, that's what's cool with base jumping. You know, it's one of these, a lot of those impromptu meetings, but that in a short amount of time, develop ties for a lifetime. And it's it's really rare. I mean, you, I, I haven't really experienced that in many other realms, aside from mountaineering or skiing, you know? And... Uh, I guess I'm sure it, it's there's there's a correlation with obviously risk and all that, but to to have the a daring commitment to something really consuming, and I think right there they just create some strong ties right away. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of activities where you get to see people really for who they are in regards to confronting fear, um, overcoming adversity and all the things that come along with that. It's like, it really makes people pretty transparent. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, for sure. I think it's, uh, well, it's, it's not, uh, in those situations, you can't, you can't put on a front, you know, it's, uh, what you see is what you get. And I, I love that. And, uh, cause in, in any kind of society, even a simplified society, like American society, where everything is pretty much driven by by money and and uh you know what you have where you live or whatever 
there's still some kind of social code that you have to kind of crack down and read between the lines, right? When you're in Europe, you know, in France, for example, it's super complicated because you have your personal history, the, the history of the place where you are, the hierarchy or whatever level you are infiltrating. Everything is so stratified that it is so hard to, to really read between the lines because the problem has gone from complicated to complex. But with base jumping, it's not fucking com complicated, man. It's, it's either, man, yeah, you do it or you don't. And if you do it, well, you're either hurt or you're dead or you're alive. And so things are simplified. It's just the way life should be. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, simple. We keep it simple. Yeah. You know, at the fringe of all of uh, these activities, you know, when you get on the extreme edge, you know, everything becomes very simple, very binary. You know, it's only in that gray area that, you know, most of society exists in that things get wildly complicated because there are so many different roads and avenues to take. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost a, uh, I mean, base jumping is, is, it's a form of liberation from from the from the neurosis that we all suffer from. I think, you know, and I really feel it, especially mixing with with mountaineering. You know, so if, for people listening, that I guess I'm not necessarily familiar with what I try to focus on as a jumper is I I try to mix more, you know, mountaineering or ski alpinism with skiing and base jumping all at once. So it's kind of like that journey through the mountains, right? And 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 I think you know, wingsuiting is definitely an element of that because you. You have to earn your line, right? Especially in the Alps, a lot of the time you end up in full-on mountaineering alpinism situation to get to the exit point, and then you jump off, and then you have to get out of there. So it's pretty much a journey through the mountains. But every time, whether I'm going to track a line or ski base, I always feel that clarity kicking in through the physical effort of getting up that mountain and the exertion. You know, the effort really brings uh, a form of uh, assiduity, you know, and, and sharpness. You know, instead of when you reach a super high level of exhaustion, then you, you know, you get really, really foggy. But when you're really kind of like in that, you know, cardio zone and working to get up there, it's almost like that's when all the dots are connecting, you know, and, and things are making sense. And you kind of go through that emotional roller coaster as you're thinking about what you're going to do and all that. But then as the more you exert yourself, the more things fall into place. And by the time you get up there and you're ready to commit, you're like, Either there is or isn't. In many ways, it's beyond good and evil, man. It's like it's like the materialization of Nietzsche. <laughs> I'm not sh I'm not sure that's universal. You know, like I, I, that's I'm totally with you on that one. And like most of the jumping I've been doing this year has been uh, big approaches, alpine ascents, things like that. And I love it. It's like I feel like in a way. There's like a buildup, a compression of tension and exertion and anticipation. And then when you get to the exit point, that push off is just that much more intense and gratifying. There's like this uncorking of the jump that is amazingly relieving. And uh, it's I, something that I can't replicate with lift act, access jumping. Yeah, uncorking. That's an interesting terminology. It's true. You know, you you're working to have to to open up that that old bottle of champagne. You know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, tell yeah. us uh, where you're at with uh, your film. 
So the film, um, so the movie's doing pretty well, and uh, I, I can't reveal everything yet publicly, but we're going to have some news pretty soon where we, uh, we're getting distribution. You know, I mean, we have the distribution already, you know, through, you can stream it, you can buy DVDs, things like that, but we, uh, we, uh, we just figured out a, a licensing deal, so uh, I can't reveal it, unfortunately, but uh, we, uh, uh, yeah, we, we, we get a really good uh, licensing deal coming up, so it's uh, hopefully going to open the movie to more people. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there were, uh, uh, oh, go for there it. There were a lot of good parts in there that we'd, uh, we wanted to touch on. If uh, you can speak to some of the stuff that uh, you've revealed, you know, within the film. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm happy to, yeah, talk about anything in the movie. But first, before we dive in, it's also, I, I do want to, you know, touch on the point that it is someone else's interpretation on my own life, right? Like I was not involved at all in the in the editing process, in the creative side of things. I pretty much just delivered a bunch of images, and this guy that followed me, Chase Ogden, over eleven years, told the story as he perceived it, right? You know, so there's definitely some things that I would have, I think, tweaked here and there, but I think overall he, he gave a pretty accurate and, and good message, you know. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay, well, before we get in, then maybe you could uh, fill us in with uh, some of the things that you would have added had you been in the editing room, maybe some uh, shift in perspective that was uh, left out. Uh, well, a lot of, you know, stuff. I think a lot of, you know, you know, me and my family were fully open during, during interviews, but I think I would have touched base on a little more the, the impact on the family, on people around you, your, in your close surroundings, you know. Uh, yeah, the parents, but then the, you know, sisters, you know, wife, kid, all this stuff, how everybody perceives this stuff. I think um, uh, Chase really focused, I think, on the journey as far as being an athlete. I would have focused maybe not only just on that, but also the periphery and everything that is impacted on, you know, on the other side of that, right? But uh, at the same time, it's also, I think, uh, gracefully transitioned from, yeah, the guy kind of like paying his dues and, and earning his 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 grade, you know, within that sport and then, you know, falling in love, you know, meeting Joanne and all that and then becoming a father. And then the, the focus then went naturally from, you know, self to relationship to the kid. But I think there could have been a lot more stuff we could have, you know, dug in there. But at the same time, I'm uh, it's impossible to put everything in like a 77-minute movie, right? You know, you do have to pick your battles. And I fully, I, I fully appreciate and, and, and stand by what, you know, chase's uh chase did like i can i can stand by anything that i said in the movie there's <laughs> no problem uh it's just i think some stuff where you know just for editing some stuff we can like take in a little out of time and this and that but everything that's in the movie i said and i can stand by it so that's cool you know it's okay. not like he, yeah so that's good but i'm also working slowly on a on a book to really kind of like dig in because you know there's uh there's, cool yeah there's gonna be some 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 darker, deeper shit, you know, that maybe I didn't express accurately either as a subject, either in the movie, you know what I mean? Things with, you know, my, my family history, my sister uh, committing suicide when I was 18 and and really what the impact is of, of becoming a father while doing dangerous stuff. I think I, there's so much more layers to it that can really be explored more. And I'm sure, Lo, you can talk about that because you're a father and you're still jumping and I don't know how you experience it, but uh also you know like i did crash right before the birth of my child so there are so many ramifications from that you know if that yeah makes sense. and we're gonna jump into that too um <laughs> you know i think that the movie doesn't shy away at all from some of those really difficult questions 
Okay. And it does a good job of, uh, you know, showing your, I mean, you're like a nuclear explosion of energy and <laughs> it's like, you know, like your love for jumping and your stoke around it is, uh, is, is amazing. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you today. So, um, but let's maybe since we were just talking about that, the periphery, um, do you think base jumping is a selfish activity? Um, yes, but then we need to tap into something. Is selfish bad? I mean, who else is going to live your life for you except yourself? I think the, the, the question is, do you know where the line stands between being selfish and becoming egocentric? A lot of the time, those terms, especially in French language, a lot of the time, egocentrism is used for selfishness or vice versa. It's like there's different levels of selfishness there, right? I think being selfish still, maybe it's me justifying it, <laughs> but I think selfishness requires being aware of your place in the world and among others, right? And you kind of create the space for yourself to be able to thrive and, and live a fulfilling life, right? No else, nobody else is going to live your life for you except yourself. But then egocentrism is when the whole universe has to align itself around you. And then that's some fucked up shit. That's when you fall into the realm of extreme unhealthy narcissism, right? And, and, and I think the concept of selfishness necessarily being bad is, um, I think, often associated with maybe some of the, you know, religious heritage that, you know, a lot of our Western societies were founded on, for example, you know. But uh, I also think I was just having that conversation with my son today, actually. And he was like, I don't think it's you're really being selfish because you you really plan your jump and your stuff like really, really like, you know, thoroughly, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, that's what I try to do because I think selfishness would be just to, to just go and do these things like a kook and not really care, you know. And, and, and I think when there's a level of caring in your actions, I think it kind of negates um, a level of... Um, imposing selfishness onto others so if i don't know if that makes sense so <laughs> if you care about the jumping if you put your heart and soul into it if you you know maintain your uh, your skill set such that it's uh, less likely that you're going to go in then in that way you're honoring all of the people around you that would uh, miss out on your company had you gone in is that a fair uh, representation of what you what you're saying I think you're expressing very eloquently. I think you should write the book instead of me. So thank you. <laughs> I've, got a, I've, got, I've got a question uh, about selfishness. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting one to delve into. Do you find that there's a difference between selfish and self-serving? Yeah, I think there is a huge difference. I think uh, self-serving has a notion of, uh, of, of, of using you know, you're using others and things for for your own good. But that, with that, I think there's a level of lack of morality, I think, in it, you know, where selfishness is just doing things that are right for you. I mean, is there anything wrong with that? I don't think so. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting when people call base jumpers selfish and you look at the vast majority of their actions and they are completely self-serving. Ours are just a little more extreme. And so, like, what are we really saying there? You know, they spend all of their time bowling or drinking or doing whatever. We spend all of our time, you know, base jumping and training for it. 
really like everyone is doing something for themselves there. You know, the only difference is that we're doing an activity where in which like we might be written out of their storylines, which almost puts like, you know, their assertion that we're being selfish also in selfish territory where they say like, yo, Matthias, like, don't do that base jump because I need you here tomorrow for my storyline. Like if, if you don't end up in my, how am I going to write the rest of my movie if you end up disappearing? That's that you're being selfish. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's, I mean, what you pointing at right now is is a necessary reframing, I think, because fuck, I'm gonna go. A lot of people are gonna hate me, maybe for saying this, but I mean, isn't like having four or five kids freaking selfish too? Like you just keep projecting yourself, you're reproducing yourself, you're imposing yourself to the rest of humanity in a state of overpopulation right now because it makes you feel good to have a big family and this and that like i think honestly that's a lot more detrimental than throwing yourself off a cliff no doubt yeah that's uh that's a very interesting perspective as well that's super selfish to have you know like a huge family right now a lot of people would hate me for that but that's one of the reasons why i only had one kid too one of the main reasons is i understand one or two kids you you you're replicating yourself but not beyond right but when you go beyond that it's like and i have tons of friends i have three kids and i've had these conversations with them you know I, I, I love them they do a great job as parents their kids are turning out to be awesome but the thing is like you know then you're tapping into a level of imposition which when you're imposing on others then isn't that the definition of selfishness so so now you're selfish and judgy <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. Oh, dude of course i'm judgy i'm french <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know from okay. my side that um, we wanted to so that they would be a team, you know, like uh, yeah. we're basically expats, you know, like my family's from France originally, but I'm culturally American. And um, I knew that, you know, Leo is going to be a little bit different from the other kids, you know, even if we live in a very international area. Uh, and so having two of them, you know, I had a brother growing up and it, it was awesome. So I wanted that for him. No, and, um, I, and, I, and I get it. And I think, you know, and, and again, you know, I think a two is totally, totally healthy. It's just for me, I also know it's, it's, it's not just, you know, the kids, I also knew that it would become a conflict with, with my, with my activity, you know, which is, again, you know, I knew that I wouldn't be the dad that I want to be if I had more than one kid, because I, I wouldn't be able to, first of all, spend the time that I want with my kids because I have all this time consuming stuff on the other side too and then things would start conflicting in an unhealthy way so that's where I just knew I had to draw draw, draw the line right mm. but I, I was just using this as a counter example for selfishness <laughs> and, and mainly pointing out to like even more like big family like four or five kids or more you know what I mean like whoa man that's some pretty messed up stuff but yeah I totally get it man like you're an expat you're in France it's it's a hard especially you in the Alps man like even though it's international there's a lot of localism there, you know, even as a French Absolutely. guy, I, I wasn't born in the Alps. I was born in Normandy. My mother's Dutch. My dad is from Southwest of France. And last thing I know, I mean, ski academy in the Alps, this ski race, <laughs> my first day in school, man, I'll never forget it. All these mountain kids are like, what are you doing here? You're not from here. We're like, oh, shit. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to have to earn my spot here. <laughs> right. I've got the, one more there was on something... the selfishness uh, question before we move on yeah, too go far. For it. Uh, we asked about like base jumping as a selfish activity, but I find that you represent a different area of base jumping being as though 
you film everything. You know, you've pushed into a realm of performance art, which is slightly different than base jumping entirely. So like being that you share this with the world, and I assume that you do so like so that you enrich other people's lives, kind of like the, the statement that Jacques Cousteau makes. He says, if one man, for whatever reason, has the ability to lead an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. And so just by the very nature of, of filming all of your jumps, you seem to push into another category. What do you feel about that? Um, I, 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 I would agree, I guess, with the, I mean, it's, it's a glamorous comparison, but you could still, you know, but I think it's, I think the first step in, in having a passion is to live it. And the second step is to share it. And there's so much positive stuff that can come from that. And, and, and it's, I think it's, it's, yeah, sure. Selfishly, I think it's for me, I, I, I love being sharing things that I'm excited about because I'm an extrovert, right? It's just the way it is. But at the same time, it you do tap into a form of yeah, art form when you figure out the right angles and this and that. And it's 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 painting a moving picture and putting all those pieces together. And I think that's that's beautiful. I don't do it for the video. I have these projects that I'm super inspired about and that I really want to do because I'm I'm just excited about it as a mountain man first. But second of all, quickly, the step is to how do we turn this into a beautiful, beautiful story or a beautiful video or a beautiful thing to put together. And I think that's, base jumping is so beautiful. It would be such a shame to not share it. You know, I understand people that do a lot of like, you know, illegal jumps or things under the radar that they don't, don't want to show it. And that's, that's cool. But man, I jump in the mountains, man. So it's, uh, let's share it. It's all good. <laughs> You know, I think to cap off uh, the selfish topic, um, I think one of the things that you said in the movie that was uh, really poignant to me was uh, you said to your son, the best example you could be for your son is to have the courage to follow what matters to you. Is uh, Would you like to expand on that? Well, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, first, before I expand on it, how did you... I guess experience it as a viewer because I'm curious about that too. You know, you so you, you hear this and you're a jumper. How how did it resonate? Or it did it resonate with you? Then obviously I think it did because you asked the question. But how did it resonate with you and why? You know, this is obviously a, a very um, this is a very um, strong topic for me and uh, Ellen and our family uh, because. This is something that, that defines us in a way, you know, and uh, I think that the, the struggle is really to, uh, for me, is identifying um, how important it is to me, uh, whether it's something that I just identify with uh, on the ego level, like this is who I am, this is what I do, and this is how I relate to the people around me, is someone who does this activity, and am I locked in that, or is it something that brings me so much pleasure and satisfaction that um, it's worth the squeeze, you know? Is this juice really worth the squeeze? And uh, I think it's an answer that's not necessarily tangible. It's something that sort of wanes and flows with, uh, with how things are going. But um, for me personally, um, there's an element of base jumping and the preparation and the execution of it that adds color to my life. It's, uh, 
you know, on my day to day, going to work, um, going to the supermarket, um, I feel like if base jumping isn't there in the background, in the periphery in a way, that things just start to turn gray a little bit. And it's these adventures and with our magic backpacks into the mountains that really, you know, it, it makes my life feel like there's something more, there's something special, there's something um, magical again. But, you know, I, I love paragliding. I love riding my mountain bike. I love skiing, speed riding. I love interacting with the mountains in so many different formats. But there's something about base that is so special that I can't seem to replicate anywhere else. I haven't been able to define whether or not it's a selfish thing or if it's this or that. But that line in particular is also how I would want to justify my actions because it is something that is extremely meaningful to me. And I am living where I live I am with the person I'm with. I have the job that I have because all of these things come from base. So who am I to say that it's a negative in my life? You know, even if I was to die, um, so much has come from it. Um, so that, yeah, so that, that statement that you made was, was very powerful for me and uh, something that, um, that I can identify with. And that's the kind of example that I would like to be for Leo and my, my son coming is, is uh, you know, making sacrifices, taking risk, and, but with intention. You know, like uh, I think that's what we were talking about with the selfish aspect as well. Is like if you have intention, if you're executing uh, to the best of your ability, um, then, you know, freaking send it. I think it's a total catch-22, and I think both of you guys walk an incredibly fine line that is hard to balance on. You know, on the one hand, I can say that showing an example uh, of what it is to be authentic is one of the most important lessons that you can teach a kid, period. And so if you guys are living an authentic life as you know, base jumpers, you know, and showing your children that like whatever dreams they have can be attained and can be managed and can be, you know, gone after Then Like that's one of the most important things that they can take away from your relationship. And on the other hand, you have to be around to like actually raise those kids and give them those lessons. And certainly there are a lot of our friends that uh, have left their kids behind um, base jumping or wingsuiting and doing all of this crazy stuff. And I don't think that, uh, the lesson that they taught is going to replace, you know, their absence. Uh, you make a very good point. Um, for me, I think, again, I, I consider base jumping more as a mountain activity for me because I jump mainly in the mountains, right? And so using other mountain sport as an example, for example, you know, gr gr growing up uh, part-time in the Alps and then going to school in the Alps with mountain kids and you know, sons and daughters of guides and some of my friends lost their dad in the mountains early, you know, they were four or five years old and they didn't have their dad growing up around. And, but I think it's, uh, I'm not romanticizing it, but I think it's, it's, they can find a form of, even though they, it comes with a lot of pain and uncertainty and not having their dad around, right? But it comes with a, a certain meaning to it, I think. And again, I think ethos is, is everything. And it's, it's 
I think it's even more detrimental when you have a parent who just abandons a kid, you know, because it's not, and that's why I said in the letter to my son that I'm not abandoning him if I'm not coming home and why I explained why I'm, I'm, I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And it's, I think there's, there's some inspiration to be found. And for example, you know, the daughters of uh, uh, Patrick Valençon was one of the first, you know, big, ex steep, extreme skier in the Alps, you know, and, and uh, he, he passed. And then uh, I think a few weeks later after his, his, his wife passed as well. And 14 and 19 year old daughter all of a sudden were just orphans, you know, and, and they, they, they managed, they did, they did well. I'm sure there was some family probably helping in. I don't know all the details, but one became a doctor and the other one, uh, I think became an engineer or something like that. But the one thing who became the doctor also became a mountain guide and they're avid climbers and mountain people. And I think they somehow found some kind of a, of a meaning in there. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it is, you want to, you want to, you want to see your, your children or your child grow up to, to become an adult. But uh, at the same time, I think dying for something that is a definition to your existence is different than just bailing on your family too. You know, I think there's, there's a different notion in there. I don't know if you agree, but. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, base jumping is foolhardy. You know, it's not as though, uh, you're leaving them behind, you know, as somebody would just abandoning them. You know, I think that's a, an inappropriate word to use. Um, and it's, I find it interesting also that uh, you uh, are teaching your kids about this authentic, you know, self and uh, that you're chasing your dreams. But on the other hand, in the movie, you also say that you wish your, uh, your son would not base jump. Uh, I'm curious how that... Uh, how you can reconcile the two there. I think it has, it was at the time, I think uh, things changed. I would, actually, I think I would love my son to be <laughs> now that he's older. Uh, obviously, <laughs> my, my, my wife is on the opposite schedule. She actually, it's pretty bad. He talks about base jumping all the time. So it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's really, really bad. Like, yeah. Around that time, it's actually like, when we're shooting that movie, I was just driving him from, from school and then uh, driving him back from school and I can look in the rear view mirror and he's pouting in the back seat and, and I'm like, son, what's going on? He was like, well, I really want to base jump but mom won't let me. And I'm like, son, you're four. You, you can't base jump for a long time. You know, you, first of all, you got to skydive <laughs> and you're in the US. If you're in France, you can skydive at 16. But in the US, you got to wait till you're 18. You got to skydive a bunch before you base jump. So pretty much you have another like 16 years before you base jump or something like that, at least. And, uh, and he said, yeah. And, said, and your mom's not going to be happy. And then he goes, yeah, but it's my life. I'm like, fuck. At four, you know. And recently, so he's he keeps talking about it with his mom. And then <clears throat> she pulled, like, the the Jimmy Chin card. And uh, <laughs> uh, where Jimmy Chin's mom, you know, I think told him that he couldn't do high-altitude mountaineering until she, as long as she was alive or something like that, you know. And then... When she passed, and he just was just started to do some, you know, eight thousand meter peaks and stuff like that. And so Joanne pulled the same card and so on. She's like, "All right, you can't base jump as long as I'm alive." <laughs> and then the other day, same thing. I'm driving him around somewhere or to go skateboarding or something, because I mean, he's dropping vert ramp on a skateboard at eight years old now. It's like that's 
just as dangerous, I think, for me as base jumping, you know? And, like, you slam on the concrete, it's not going to be good. <laughs> it does some brain damage, like, right there, you know, if you if you don't do it right. But, uh, uh, and then, uh, but, yeah, he's like, he's like, ah, oh, you know, when mommy's dead, I'm going to base jump. And it's just like, God, guys, just don't talk about this. As, as soon, no, he said, as soon as mom's dead, I'm going to base jump. So it's so bad. It's going to happen. But, you know, it's also, I got to reframe that comment in the movie at that time, right? I'm in the phase where I'm still rebuilding myself after the crash. I still hadn't gone back to the mountain that almost killed me. I, I, it, it was a time of redeveloping the, the skills, but mainly, most importantly, the confidence and the serenity in jumping. And in the last two years, man, I really tapped into that high level of serenity and plenitude when jumping. Especially last summer when, you know, I, I got an ETMD and it's pretty much, you know, half wingsuit, half tracking suit. It's not really tracking anymore, but it's not really a wingsuit. So you tap into this, all this fear. And I never really tapped into flying suit that much. I did it over the years, but not assiduously. And then I really skied out and then went to Europe and then within like, six base jumps flying some lines and kind of like buzzing some ledges and cliffs and i'm like but instead of it being and i, I totally understand why low you just do it so much because it's not this crazy freaking thing that you you look at it on images it is so serene at 180 kilometers per hour just so dialed and 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 and, and relaxing it's like it's like flying meditation and I'm like, oh my God. And now that that level of serenity has finally kicked in or kicked back in since the the, the, the crash. And it's, whew, man, it's like, you feel like Yoda. And that's so amazing. And so now having experienced all this and also the level of serenity and sh sharpness that I have with ski base jumping and experiencing in both disciplines within base jumping, like it would be such um, a shame for my son to not experience this if he has a desire. You know, and it's like, it's, it's, I won't, yeah, I'll, I would, I would support it, but I would, I would teach him as much as I can because I know I've survived things that others might have not survived. Or if he goes into a discipline that I don't master at all, you know, like, be like, okay, I definitely want to recommend the right person to do it because, you know, just like in anything, you can have good teachers and bad teachers, right? You know, so I was, I think all of us were probably lucky to, I don't know, have the right mentors or learn somehow in the correct format. So now we, we're still doing it and enjoying it and tapping into this level of serenity. I mean, it's so amazing. It's the fourth dimension of living. That's what it is, man. Damn. Uh, I like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is like meditation. But um, from my experience, meditation is much harder. Like uh, wingsuiting is like meditation with some serious training wheels, you know, like you step off and it's like, bam, you're thrown into that, that state immediately where it's like, you know, you're sitting and, you know, whatever style of meditation you practice, it's like you know, something hurts and your mind is it's hard to, to get that, that state. But uh, yeah, wingsuiting is, uh, it's easy. It just throws you right into it. And uh, all those feel good chemicals uh, that, that are released with it too, or, you know, can stay with you for hours sometimes too it's a it's, it's pretty amazing when you land it's like you're, you're you're levitating you're levitating through life hours after you land and you're like i've got this i'm doing such a good job at living i've got this that's amazing <laughs> we've had quite a bit of overlap um you know uh, the hour is a pretty special mountain to me as well uh, you know watching the film it was like oh yeah you know like uh, I, I opened with some friends uh, two different exit points on that mountain 
And uh, so I've experienced quite a bit of fear up there, you know, like a, a lot of uh, a lot of the similar feelings that I think you were expressing really well is about like determination and focus and being drawn there and the beauty and the potential darkness of it. Um, those were all things that I could really relate to. But as you're talking about uh, the ETMD and, and wingsuiting and stuff like that, um, that kind of reminds me of another thing that Jesse Hall said at the beginning where, um, you know, he said it, how crazy it is, how like at the beginning of your progression, like, you know, you start simple and then you get start doing crazier and crazier things. Um, how do you personally balance this like desire to progress and um, know what is reasonable to an extent? <laughs> Uh, well, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> as you do this, uh, and I, I don't know if you guys would agree with this or if, if, if people who are listening to you would agree with that as, as jumpers, it's, I think everything is a stepping stone towards the next thing. For me, skiing was a stepping stone towards base jumping, you know, for ski base jumping. And then ski base jumping, when you get to ski base jumping, was a stepping stone towards actually then later on flying suits and things like that, right? And everything, it's not necessarily being crazier and crazier, it's just stacking your skills on top of the other and just going further with this. But I think what is really necessary is to have brinksmanship, you know, and, uh, and, and brinksmanship is, it's, I, I heard that from a friend who heard that in an interview from Iggy Pop. And Iggy Pop's uh, psychiatrist told him during a therapy session, like, you have great brinksmanship. And he's like, what is brinksmanship? Brinksmanship is to know how to push as far as you can, but then pull back a little bit. And I think for me, that's kind of <clears throat> what I think what I've done through my life with socially and through sports and, 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 and school and even my profession is to kind of distinguish where the frame of execution is or what the frame of execution is and expanding it or sometime making it a little narrower. And, and, and I think that's, that's the way I, I see it. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, that's, that's kind of how I see it. I don't see it being crazier and it's crazier. I think it's just reestablishing your frame of execution based on your skills that you're developing. Totally. Yeah, your skills go up and the jumps get more complicated. And yeah. I, I can say pretty confidently that most of our friends that aren't around went into the you know the base jumping environment wanting to execute at a hundred percent you know wanting to see if they could execute the limit of their you know skills when everything was on the line and it seems like what you're saying is you know you find the line for your skill set which might be increasing every year and then you just kind of dial it back a little bit so that you have a little bit of margin i 100 percent. i mean i uh, I, when I jump, I'm at 80%, 99% of the time, you know, as far as the difficulty goes, right. Or the engagement or the error margin, right. You know, and, but then the jumps that are like a hundred percent, like you can't fuck up like ski base jumping from the top of Mont Blanc and things like that. Like this is the jumps that you prepare for, for a long time. And then when the time comes, you're going to do it and you're going to do it perfectly because there's no other option. But it doesn't mean that you should be doing jumps like this every day. First of all, you can't. And if you do these every day, well, you, you're lowering your chances of survival tremendously. And your expiration date is going to come a lot quicker. Yeah, I don't want to compare my own um, jumps to the level of complexity or, or danger that, like, uh, you know, ski base is. And, and maybe we'll jump deeper into that in a second. But, like, 
um, wingsuit base jumping has been a daily activity for me, not necessarily lately, but has been for a long time. And um, yeah, I have my own questions about that too, because that whole bricksmanship, uh, you know, brinksmanship, like bringing it to the brink and, and, and knowing how close that is. You know, I was living at the foot of the Bravant, you know, like in the golden days uh, in Chamonix. And uh, what a trip that is, huh? Like I can be drinking coffee and be at one of the most intense, extreme wingsuit base jump exits, you know, in the world within 15 minutes, you know. I've, I've just wiped my morning poop and um, all of a sudden I'm, I'm in it, deep in it. And uh, that there's something different there. Uh, I, I don't know quite where I'm going with that, but let, uh, th there's a difference between preparing for, you know, a once in a year jump and then the being in it, having it in your backyard. But I think also that that internal question and that that brinksmanship uh, isn't any different just requires a little bit more repetition yeah where did you learn brinksmanship by the way you know you talk about operating at 80 percent and i find that most people find it difficult to have the self-awareness to know what 80 percent is and uh, certainly if you, the first sport that you did was base jumping finding what the brink is would be incredibly dangerous because it's very easy to just go right over the edge. Whereas, you know, if you go too fast skiing or you, you know, push yourself too hard in mountaineering, there's usually a back door to get yourself out and go like, Whoa, okay. I thought I was at 80%, but that was a hundred. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I straight up benefited from years of skiing. When I started base jumping, I was already a pro skier. So that, that, <clears throat> that expertise from another discipline translated super well in in base jumping because skiing you have to adapt really quickly you know you you have your you know you come up with a plan b on the fly sometimes you know stuff's coming down or there's a fracture and you're gonna you kind of establish roughly an escape route in your mind and then boom you ski that ridge and then or, you know, or a cliff comes over and you're just like, boom, okay, I didn't see that, but I'm going to boost it. And, and you're able to adapt and land it. And, and that, that adaptability and agility from skiing really helped with base jumping. But I think if you go straight into base jumping and don't necessarily have <clears throat> skills from another sport that would translate well into base jumping, brinksmanship would be really hard to, to learn. But it's also... As a result, when I started base jumping, I took some big bites really quickly. You know, my first day jumping, I did nine jumps and I was doing big fat gainers off the bridge on my first day. And second jump, I'm jumping Rock Canyon and then went straight to Jesse's house. Jesse halted me, you know, packed my parachute. He dropped me off at the airport and said, all right, you're a base jumper now. Call me if you have any questions. <laughs> and that was it, you know. And then I, I was ski base jumping within 20 jumps and all this stuff. And so I went really, really fast. But the only reason I could go really fast with this is because I had, I think, not only the confidence, but also a lot of skills from skiing that could translate into another aerial sport. Because I could, you know, I could do a double backflip on skis and stomp the shit out of it, no problem, you know. So when it was time to base jump, I was like, oh, it's just like skiing, except that I have even more time. This is so mellow. And that's how it felt when I started. And then quickly I realized that, yeah, base jumping is not mellow. <laughs> and then you had to, you know, I had a lot of close calls. So it's, it's almost like, yeah. But again, I think, you know, and the thing is also before I started base jumping, I, 
already broken my sternum four times skiing. I had two ACL surgeries, four microfractures in my femur, four meniscus. Like I had a lot of heavy injuries from skiing. And while that sucks, I learned a ton from it. I think as far as knowing where my mind is compared to my body and my state and 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 your level of ambition. But obviously all this need to be reassessed throughout my jumping career as well because then I obviously crashed ski base jumping a few times but uh, somehow survived it. But but again, yeah, I think, you know, if you're a paraglider, for example, getting into base jumping, you're going to have so many skills that can translate really well or a rock climber. But I truly think skiing is one of the best sports to translate and to learn from to become a, a base jumper. I hear you. So the, you have a substantial amount of evidence from your prior, you know, sports to fold into base jumping and, uh, you know, get a pretty good idea of whether you can execute the jump or not. I guess what I'm really wanting to delve into a little bit more is, you know, how do you know? How do you know that it's uh, that it's the skill set that you're bringing to the table that makes you confident rather than ego? How do you differentiate between those? <laughs> well, I think then that goes back to the roots of why do you base jump? You know, I think uh, for me, I knew I wanted to base jump since I was nine years old. You know, and I, I, for me, it was just not just a childhood dream. For me, it was just the, the definition of, 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 of living and having the, the courage to live again your life by your own standards and your life that is meaningful to you. For me, it was, I think I was base jumping for the right reasons because for me, it was just the coolest thing that it wasn't just to prove anything to myself or to others. I was doing it because it is so pure and beautiful and it was the purity of dedication. I think that that was the foundation of my desire to get into the sport. And I think that goes a long way too. I think that for any sports, you know, and uh, if you want to be a football player and you, you becoming a football player because you're that tall kid in school in Oklahoma and, you know, you can run fast and everybody's going to tell you, oh, well, you should be a football player. And then you're kind of like, well, then you just adopt that hat and not really think about it. You're like, yeah, I'm going to be a football player. And then the guy makes it to the NFL and then uh, and then within two years, then you get his career is over and then he's like, well, who the fuck am I? You know? And then I think we have a lot of that in base jumping. And those guys generally don't last more than three years. They either, they either die too quickly or they're so hurt that they can't keep jumping or they lost too many friends, or they hurt themselves, or they scared themselves so bad that they can't keep doing it. But I think if you're, if the ethos is right, then I think that makes a big difference with your progression as a jumper. What do you think, Lo? Yeah, I agree. Um, that's a topic that we've covered uh, quite a bit. I think uh, Matt and I, with some of our guests, is like the the lifespan of a base jumper's career. You know, it's a that's it's definitely something worth examining. Um, what I wanted to ask you, though, is, um, you know, coming off what you just said, there's you have a level of resilience that's uh, that's pretty admirable, uh, you know, as far as like heavy injury and really scary experience and coming back at it, you know, full steam. Um, you know, uh, for those that don't know, Matthias had um, a cliff strike when doing a ski base jump and was knocked out almost uh, instantly after hitting the cliff. 
and flew his parachute unconscious for something like, uh, what was it, 1,400 meters into the trees. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then was uh, rescued. And um, the extent of your injuries, I think, was a, a fractured femur. Um, and, yeah. uh, and some heavy uh, TBI, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I had a brain hemorrhage on the frontal lobe and then the back one, I don't know what it's called, but pretty much like almost like a double brain hemorrhage, you know. And then I had a, uh, I think like a triple fracture on my left femur, but two really big brace. The other one was just a little, little bit of femur fragment in there. But I, yeah, I, I broke my femur fully horizontally and fully di diagonally, pretty much from my hip all the way down to my knee. Uh, and uh, three days in a coma, and um, after that I was cross-eyed a little bit for six months, and I lost a lot of dexterity in my left arm and strength, which I'm still gaining back today. So, yeah, it was heavy. And that was three weeks before the birth of my kid, too, which makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, you got a very tolerant wife, you know? Like, there's a lot of work to be done uh, right at the beginning there, and when you can't carry your kid, it's like, uh, yeah, that's that's a tough one. Um, but, um, you seemed very resolute on the outside that this is something that you didn't want to stop. Was there some dark moments where you sort of questioned and, and wondered if it was worth it? And, and what, I mean, cause not everybody who's listening, you know, will recover that way or wants to recover that way, or even base jumps. What is that that's going on in your mind at that point, you know, what is the sort of the resilience that that you have what how work that out for us a little bit well it's actually i i spent two weeks in the hospital before i could fly home because my brain was bleeding right i couldn't go home so it was think about it it was two weeks of you know three days in a coma i got out and then he was full on two weeks of just reassessment you're in your hospital med you know you're not really going anywhere can't really watch TV. You can't really read. You're doing a little bit of PT every day, but you know you you have a catheter. You can barely go to the bathroom. Like all you can do is think. But you know my brain was bleeding too, so you don't necessarily think as sharply as you would under normal circumstances, I guess. But somehow it was a. I was really in a fog when I got out of the coma, and I felt really bad. And uh, that's not in the movie, but I was kept. I kept saying for a couple of days, I'm going to stop jumping. And I was almost delirious. You know, I was like, I'm going to become a helicopter pilot and I'll still fly, but I'm done base jumping and I'll sell real estate and all this shit. But then two weeks, two days later, it was just like, nah, you know, once the clarity really kicked in and the assessment, it was actually one of the sharpest, clearest moment of my life. This is when I realized like, well, it's, this is, re I really took it as a test to my dedication. Like, this is, I'm not thinking, you know, a God or outside force throwing that at me, but it's just like, just, just, just the experience is like, okay, this is the moment to really question yourself. If you're made for this, if this is truly your vocation, your calling, your, 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 your craft of dedication. And, um, obviously the answer was yes, but one of the, so positive things I guess that happened to me is uh, I guess to give some reframing so when I was 18 years old um, my my sister committed suicide and uh, I was the only kid at home and my, my sisters I have two older sisters and uh, 
she has a twin sister and then I have my older sister and they, they you know they they're living up in, in Paris and uh, I was working I, I just had my first knee surgery and I was working in the greenhouse factory just sorting metal pieces all day you know like very tedious boring job right I get a call and the call is like Matthias you gotta come home your your sister just died I was like fuck she committed suicide it's like shit so it's kind of like instantly, kind of like getting knocked in the head, you know, you, you go numb and you, you're not angry, you're not sad, you just, it's like, you just, you just numb almost, you know, it's like you got punched in the head so hard that you just can't really make sense of things. Anyway, got home, my dad couldn't deal with the news, he went straight to work. My mother is, you know, crying and bawling, so I, I had to pick up the phone and call the cops and make the appointment at the mortuary to go recognize the body, call my sisters, give them the news, which being the messenger was the worst thing ever when somebody dies and when you're the one giving the news, that's the worst fucking thing. And, um, you know, then went through, you know, recognizing the body, all this stuff, and, and seeing actually the impact of gravity on, on the body is, is brutal. You know, I had flashbacks for about 10 years of her head caved in and bruising and, and, and body, you know, deformations and things like that it's not pretty when and I guess that's what somebody would look like when they go in as well you know so it's for all the people listening it's like I've lucky I haven't seen somebody go in, in front of me yet I know it'll probably happen but but I've seen the impact of it obviously on my sister and um, but anyway went through the whole funeral and all this stuff and then at the funeral is really when it hit me and I wasn't base jumping yet I was you know hard you know assiduous skier you know I don't want to say hardcore but I was you know really skiing very diligently and you know I blew my knee skiing you know right right there and 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 see all the sadness around all that and then realize that you know my, my sister was super smart she spoke five languages and had a master's in history and literature and was going to get a master's in journalism so she was way beyond my IQ level right <laughs> and uh so I realized that obviously her, her depression her suicide was not a question of of intellect at all but it was a question of uh, what I call existential pillars. You know, what is your life founded on? What are the, the strength and the pillars of your life that are gonna be the driving force of it? And I already knew what my existential pillars were, you know, skiing, and then I'm, I'm a very avid surfer. I try to surf as much as I can, and then I already knew since I was nine that I was gonna base jump. I mean, I, I wasn't base jumping yet, but I already established it in my mind at least, and my heart as an existential pillar. All I needed to do was just pay my dues and then commit to it, right? And, um, yeah, and so anyway, it's walking back from her funeral, I, that's when I signed a pact with myself to, to honor my passions, no matter how terrifying they might be. And this is a strength that I still have deep inside of me today. And when I woke up in the hospital um, after the, the coma, the, my, my older sister, who's like my mother pretty much, she's 12 years older, and she was the one really panicking and angry and telling all my friends like tell him to stop he's got to stop doing this stuff and blah blah and then my other sister who's the twin sister of our sister who passed was sitting so peacefully next to me and I was really surprised by the the difference of reactions between two sisters right and then she looked at me and she said you're you're honoring our sister by living an intentional life and that just hit me so deep because it's like, okay, I obviously fucked up. I'm, I'm not home with my wife who's pregnant and is going to give birth to our child soon. And I did not expect this positive message. You know, while I obviously, you know, ate it super hard on a mountain and I was pretty, you know, damaged. And uh, 
but right there it gave me the comfort that I you know that that I had dedicated my life to something meaningful and my, that might seem completely foolish to to outsiders but to me it still resonated that it, it is it is intentional and it's an act it's an act of, of, of purpose and, and dedication and, and, and intention and it's a rational act to jump off a cliff and uh, that's when I was like, okay, I got to go back and, and finish that mountain because for me also, I'm an ambitious person. I'm not going to deny this, right? I have a list of things that I'm trying to achieve. And for me, it was really the Pointe d'Arreux ski base was exactly half of ski base jumping from the summit of Mont Blanc. It was half the climb, you know, uh, pretty much half the skiing with all this weight and all this stuff. And, and so it was a great practice to put all these skills together necessary to be able to ski base jump from the summit of Mont Blanc. And so I knew that, you know, and then, yeah, I got home and then I kind of gave up on the idea of going back to the Pointe d'Arreux for a little bit while I was rebuilding myself, but I was not, you know, a ski, I was skydiving four months after the crash, base jumping six months later, skiing took me nine months, ski base jumping took me a year. And then, but finally, I returned to the Pointe d'Arreux uh, six years after the crash. And three months after skiing the Pointe d'Arreux, I was able to ski base on the top of Mont Blanc. So that's kind of how it all fell into place. But it, again, this is why I, I insist so much on the meaning and the ethos of why are you jumping? And this is what I want people to, to ponder on when, that they're listening to this today. is like, why are you base jumping? Why are you a base jumper? What does it mean to you? Are you doing this just because it's, just because it's cool? because you want to get laid, because you want to prove something to yeah, yourself or others, or is it actually something that totally fits within your your, your, your existential frame that you established for yourself? And, and it for sounds me, like, yeah, go for it. It sounds like what you're saying is that you continue to base jump because you find harmony. Like it's what you're drawn and designed to do your destiny is to be a base jumper is that correct yeah i'd agree with that a skier and a base jumper and it's 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 that's why i really focus on ski base jumping but that's that's it for me base jumping is the highest level of serenity and plenitude which i guess is the definition of harmony i guess you know and and it's 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 harmonious life i i would i i I'd go even further. I had an epiphany when I was hiking to the top of Mont Blanc. You know, you have 50 pounds in your back and it's an 8,200 foot hike for one ski base. You know, it was brutal. You know, <laughs> I got to the top, my, my shins were bleeding, my shoulders were bleeding. It was such a, a, a nightmarish puzzle to put together with the different levels of wind at different altitudes and the snow density and all this stuff and the height of the Serac because there's no cliffs up there. I jumped off an ice wall. So, so much uncertainty and, 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 anxiety going up but as I was climbing hiking to the top and and getting ready to ski base then I, I really asked myself like okay there's almost no air margin at all on this jump you know the frame of execution is pretty tight on this you know you can't fuck this one up otherwise but that means if you fuck up I mean you'll be here forever and so I asked myself like do you fully accept actually the level that level of commitment and that risk do you accept succeeding and the potential, I guess, glory that comes out of it in your own eyes or whatever it, it is, you know, however you experience it? Or do you actually accept equally failing, which means dying? And for me, 
success and failure were put on the same level and there was the same level of acceptance about it. And that level of acute acceptance was so thorough and beyond what I'd ever really experienced until then that it really led to um, what I've, I've defined since then trying to put words on it, right? You know, you go in the mountains and you feel, but then you're able to put words on your feelings after when you come home and you digest it all, you know, and digesting it all and rehearsing that, 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 that sequence in my mind over and over again, I realized this is when I reached existential emancipation. It's almost like you, you, you transcended your existential, an existential crisis, your existential fears. You're, that's why I was saying, you know, beyond good and evil, like you're not tied to, to God or the devil or any of these, you know, human inventions. You're just beyond all those tie downs of, of existence because you've, you've transcended it all because you're going so far in your craft and your pursuit that it, 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 it's, you're levitating over all this because you fully accept who you are and where you are and what you're going to do. And that's what base jumping is to me. Because I almost, I do that, that, that I go through that mindset before every single jump now. Whether it's just jumping at the Parian Bridge or flying a wingsuit or, or doing a mellow ski base or doing a super gnarly ski base, I go through that same mindset every time and ask myself, if 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 I if I accept every potential every potentiality from this jump and and if I can't reach this level of existential emancipation, the jump is not worth it. So, so on that note, I'm <laughs> curious to ask you what you feel about risk, and I'm I'm going to be precise here. What you feel about risk, because you know we talk about it a lot and. You know, society certainly looks at all of our behavior as very risky, but as you describe it with this existential emancipation and that you're like designed basically to do this and feel drawn to like, you know, jumping off almost like, you know, a bird flying through the air would not, you know, usually describe their behavior as risky. You know, they're designed to do that. Um, what is your, what is your like feeling of like does it feel like you're uh you know engaging in risky behavior when you jump off of a cliff right when i'm doing it or right when i'm dropping in for a ski base yeah does it feel risky no the risk feels it feels risky with everything leading up to it but once i've committed i'm going i'm skiing it's just another day skiing man or if I'm flying a line, it's like, no, if it feels risky, it means that it's probably something going really, really wrong. But at the same time, I guess the, the tricky part is everything leading up to that moment when you, you've given the countdown and you're going, right? And, and this is when you really assess the risk. That's when, I guess you really feel the risk when you assess it, I guess, more. Because you, you're gathering all this information from the way you feel, your emotions are, are like almost a barometer for your environment. Oh, I'm feeling this probably because there's this happening and this and that. And you just, that's why you're going through that emotional roller coaster, which means that you're just only tuning in with your environment. That's all it means, I think, in the end. And 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 I think the, the, the level of, of risk that you're willing to take is going to be founded on, on, on your skills and your approach and your fragmentation of the problem itself and then by the time you you've 
gone everything in line to confront the problem or to let's say confront, I don't know if it's the right word, but to tackle the problem or actually solve it or make it come alive, then it's everything is falling into place. We're talking about black or white or gray, right? And it's generally when you go there, you, you know where you stand, which I think it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's dangerous, I guess, you know, you it could potentially kill you or harm you. But it almost feels like completely normal as you're doing it. I mean, I don't know if you guys experience it like that, but when I'm in the air, like I just feel like, oh, it's as completely irrational and it completely makes sense. And we're landing, I'm excited, but more and more I have less of the super Frenchy scream when I'm landing. Like, I'm just like, yeah, that was, that was good. I'm, I'm tapping more into that, that, that mellow stage. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting closer to 40 now, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 very strange it's it's not strange at all actually sorry it's 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 been a drastic evolution and change in it where i just feel um it, it, it it's it's a highly um philosophical physical act i'll take that um, let me let me maybe dive in a little bit uh, to to break up this question uh, more precisely. Uh, fear. Um, do you have uh, do you have an approach to confronting fear or working with fear or is this something that comes naturally? Do you have certain techniques? Do you have a you know a breathing practice or can you identify fear and uh, you know, maybe quantify it. And when are you ready? Do you have too much fear? You're going to wait, you're going to do, could you expand a little bit on your process around fear? Oh, 100%. And I, I mean, I'm sh you guys are familiar with, with that concept, but I think we all have different ways of dealing with it. And, and if people watch the movie, that's actually one of the things that's for me, I think is interesting in the movie is there's different levels of different, uh, different levels of the relationship with fear within the movie itself because it's over 11 years. At the beginning, when I started base jumping, I just kind of ignored it. I was just like, yeah, whatever, just freaking do it. You know, you feel scary, like, just just do it. Then after that, I was trying to manage my fear, whatever that, that means, which in the end, fear is there. Like, when people tell you they're fearless or they, or they conquer their fear, it's fucking BS, you know, because like, fear is always going to be there. So they just they just want to be macho, cool dudes and whatever, you know. <laughs> it's, I think you just all you're doing is just you're just managing your anxiety. That's all you're doing because the fear is there. But then after that, then I just I just embrace it, man. I I used to get worked up by that emotional roller coaster, which fear is a big part of, right? You know, when your mind's going crazy and you're hiking and like let's say I don't know, like you. You, you break your lace on your shoe right before you're going to go on the hike. It's like, oh, my God, is this the bad almond? Maybe I shouldn't go for the jump. Or I don't know. Oh, but no, you're not a superstitious person. Why are you thinking this way? Oh, maybe you're overthinking because there's a bad say, Oh, my God, the birds are flying this way. Oh, that's a, that's maybe the wind is doing this. You know, you just start overthinking everything. And I used to think all these little signs are just a sign that you should just not go. <laughs> and then now I just... I just fully let my heart just go up and down and be like, it's just part of the process, man. You know, it's just, it just comes with it. It's just, again, it's, it's that transition of you tuning in with your environment. And, uh, that's how I, I, yeah, that's how I, I experience it. 
when I get to, to the exit or the top of the mountain or and I'm getting ready for, you know, for my jump and I, um, I always go through the same process, you know, I always go, you know, concentrate, visualize, execute. That's the three stages, you know, and then concentrating for me really starts, you know, when I'm hiking, you're paying attention, especially ski based jumping, man, you, you feel getting a feel for the snow, the scale of the terrain, what the wind is doing at different altitudes, you know, oh, I was at 4,000 meters and there was nothing, now I'm 4,400 and there's a light breeze, but it's totally acceptable and it's coming from this side, so we're going to jump there under the wind, but then you get to the summit ridge at 4,800 meters and you're getting nuked and then you're like, okay, it's brutal here, but I know down there it hasn't changed, look at the snow, the way the snow is moving, how the birds flying, all this stuff, you can't like, you kind of making, assessing everything. So that concentration is there the whole time, but it really kicks in for me when I start doing my gear check. Let's see, I'm checking my pins, repacking my powder shoe, doing all this stuff, checking my every buckle on my ski boots, getting my binding, getting every little bit of snow or ice out of the system, making sure I'm not gonna have a binding pre-releasing, getting my poles dialed, everything all the way to my cuffs. Just want to adjust it perfectly. You know, it's, it's such an OCD process. But that process really, I think, for me, helps me concentrate so much that I just, you, by having concrete tasks, it's kind of like your fear diminishes a little bit, but it's still there to keep you sharp. But you kind of like eliminating the variables as you're getting ready for your jump, right? You know, and then after that, I just fully go through that visualization process. Okay, so ski that spine, jump over the little crack there, make a little turn on that left knob, go around the seracs and the crevasses there, whatever ski the left flank, then point it, avoid the little eye chunks, jump at the 20 degree angle to the right, jump towards this peak, whatever, open and then fly. So I go through the whole plan through my head so I know exactly what the chain of event is supposed to look like. And that kind of like diminishes the fear a little more, you know, but it's still there, almost like keeping you sharp. Uh, and uh, I can't remember where I was gonna go with this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's like all, all, all those levels just really help uh, kind of, yeah, get ready for, for the action. And, 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 and I think you're, you experience different levels of fear. And then actually that's, now I remember where I was going to go with this is after I'm done with all the, the, the concentration and the visualization and getting ready to drop and analyzing the line and knowing how I'm going to do it. And if an avalanche starts, here's my plan B or the slough or stay out of this path. Anyway, especially ski base, there's so many variables in ski base that you got to figure it out. You know, it's just especially big mountain ski base, you know, it's just, it's not just hitting a ramp to a cliff. You have to manage the whole line to get there and then jump up. But then every time then before going, I, I always take the time to slow down, man, and breathe, breathe. You know, I just go through this. I had my brain waves measured years ago by a doctor. And so I can kind of like visualize what your, your heart rate's doing with your, your, your breathing rate, I guess, and then your... Uh, brain activity and muscle tension and blood flow and all this stuff. And so through doing this, I could, when you kind of like empty your mind, but stay sharp, but kind of get almost into like that, 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 um, that zone, I guess that pre-flow state, if that makes sense, you can kind of create it through managing your breathing and your heart rate and kind of making them fall in sync. And, and the way they had it, like I could, I was literally doing this hooked to a bunch of electrodes and looking at a computer and I could see the the graphs of the heart rate and the beat and the and the breathing becoming parallel and moving in in harmony you know and and it's such a harmonious process and if I I don't drop in or don't give the countdown until I'm in that zone because then you're too tense or you're rushing into it so I always take the time to get into this 
flow of things and then you just and then i'll always remember myself to smile before <laughs> i've been doing that a lot lately in the last six months i tell myself consciously I go, and we smile you know and then just smile like i look like freaking dork when i'm like <gasps> breathing and smiling but then and then i always have the same countdown before you know and i go chest strap leg strap good chunk of pilot shoot and just eat halt on me always nice and smooth so i always tell myself nice and smooth before the jump because you're going to replicate exactly what you envision or say you're just such a dunk. We all, all of us are just dunk, dunk creatures of habits, you know. So just falling to the habit, and then, and then a three, two, one, and then go. Or oh, I say something funny like un deux trois foie gras ou un deux trois chocolat. You know, you kind of keep it funny a little bit, but then, then go. And then, but yeah, it's the same process. And I was doing the same when I was ski racing, man. I always had my same process before I would get into the starting gate, and then when I go and and practice, if it was a slalom event, then I would just really hammer out all the same sections that I struggled with, like maintaining your speed through the flat while keeping the gate or the double or triple gate. How are you going to do that? And then you get into a, uh, a competition format and like, oh, it was just like like training, just do this and yeah, keep your arms forward, like whoosh, thrust your hips at every turn and boom, 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 and boom, 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 and then it just falls into place. So again, I think that's why skiing helped me so much with that process because um, it's it's that notion of, of flow and momentum and maintaining it and 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 presetting it all with a routine in order to do it accurately. So, yeah, a lot of jumpers are probably listening to me right now. They're like, "This guy is a total kook," but uh, anyway, it works for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone could label you a kook uh, that weren't a kook themselves. <laughs> <laughs> And I like, oh man, I like what you're saying here. You know, in the world of Disney, uh, smiling and thinking a happy thought is uh, the secret to flying. And uh, it sounds like your emotional experience is first one of acceptance, you know, accepting that fear is present. And then second, letting it flow through until body and mind are in harmony. And then you go. Yeah, that's, you that's beautiful. summarized it perfectly. Thank you. That's your very. Uh, it's a very sharp summary. So yeah, no, thank. I'll keep that in mind. Actually, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no, it, it is beautiful, and I think yeah, you. It goes back to you, what you were talking about about you know harmony earlier, and I think it's it's. You know, which is funny because my my that the first woman I learned to love with, surely her name was Harmony. So funny. So. Hmm. Do you ever, uh, are you ever on an exit point and you catch somebody before they're ready? Like you, you can see on their face that like their body and mind are not quite synced up yet. They haven't hit that flow that you're talking about. Oh, I see it all the time, especially at the bridge or like Turkey Boogie or things like that where there's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, well, give me some, give me some advice for these, uh, for those folks. Like, you know, when you see something like that, or even some advice for somebody that's seeing that, because, you know, quite often, like, uh, us on the exit point, we'll see somebody in that state, and we'll be like, man, like, should I say something? Should I not say something? Should I just let this go? Like, maybe some advice for people on the exit point feeling that, and some people just behind them watching that happen. Well, I think, first of all, it's, I mean, I've been in both situations where I said something and situations where I didn't say anything and, and things went, went right, right? Or sometimes things went wrong and then when I look back, I'm like, oh shit, there was all these signs that I missed, but they were there, you know? And uh, uh, it's also, it's a tricky thing to approach, man, because you, 
there's there's so much ego into jumping as well that it's it's like people might react completely differently on you kind of like stepping in. They're gonna be like, oh, they might take it as a criticism, and others might take it as like, oh, cool, no, actually, you're helping me out through this, you know. But I've been in both situations where I didn't say anything, and I see a guy, and then the jump goes wrong, and let's say at the bridge or something, and then. I literally don't even look at the guy because I'm like, I don't want to watch someone go in in front of me, you know, and then the guy lands fine. I'm like, okay, cool, sweet. I can jump, nothing happened, you know, but uh, but I've had other situations where, yeah, I was with the jumper once at the, at the bridge and a guy that did a lot of uh, uh, crew, you know, skydiving and all that. And then we went to the bridge and would really rush into his jumps and really pull, like really, really rush on his pool and, and, and throw up his, throw his whole body position, you know, go all out of whack and, being in, relaxed and in the air is so crucial because that tension gets passed onto your lines. If you're relaxed, man, you can like goo your cat. You could goo almost an off heading into an on heading by just kind of like unconsciously kind of steering your line with a smooth way. I think you know, like especially ski base because you feel it all in your hips. And and in wing shooting, obviously, you know, you you a lot of that stuff is just passed on straight into when you pitch and you in your opening phase, it gets passed on straight into your hips, you know, so you can steer all that tension will be translated into your gear. And so it's so important to to be into that that level of, of comfort and peace and not rush. And so that's the thing. I remember at that time I was at the bridge with that jumper that was really rushing into everything, being really sloppy. And I remember like grabbing him, be like take the time to breathe and slow down like you're not you're not helping you jumping by just rushing into it and 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 that catch i catch myself sometimes getting you know rush into like my my my, my gear up or my gear check or whatever because i'm worried of you know if i'm jumping in a place where i don't want to get busted or or the wind's going to pick up or somehow I have stuff on my mind and i just am rushing into it and every time i actually out loud tell myself slow down and that really helps uh, just, yeah, have it fall into place. I think if people have the awareness that they feel like they're rushing into their jump, just obviously freaking slow down. Or if they or if they feel like they're just too tense or whatever it is, like rushing into your jump will never do you any favors. Just always slow down. And 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 I think that's, yeah, if people can have the self-awareness to have that. But I would say if, 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 if I witness someone doing that, but I know the person and I feel comfortable stepping in, but if it's a complete stranger, like, I don't know, sometimes I'm, I I don't really know what to say. But I guess if you're on exit altogether, I guess it's your, it's kind of like you, you can't be fully responsible for each other's safety because it's an individual sport. But at the same time, you also want to help each other increase your chances of survival. So I think it might be the right thing to do to step in. But again, it's, it's weird because a lot of the situations that I'm in, I'm, the only one jumping or skiing or doing things like that, right? I rarely go to places where I'm jumping with a lot of other jumpers. I've been kind of like orbiting the world of base jumping while being a base jumper, if that makes sense. <laughs> so so it's, yeah. it's yeah, it's kind of weird, but yeah. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this though. Like you come from a couple of sports where it's completely acceptable uh, to step in in these situations. Like for instance, in mountaineering, you know, yeah. for you to tell somebody else on the mountain, hey man, like, I think you should slow down on this section. You know, they might look at you and go like, oh, thank you. Like I was not, you know, thinking about that clearly and you're right. Um, why do you think there's a difference between how those conversations are approached in mountaineering and skiing versus base jumping? No, there's none. I think you, you touched on something. Uh, maybe I'm overthinking it when it comes to base jump because when you're skiing or you 
or you mountaineering, it's 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 almost like learning a, or it's like doing a martial art, you know, when they always say that you leave your ego at the door, you know, and it, it's not a place of hubris, you know, it's, it, it shouldn't be. And it's almost like the more you do it, you know, we keep hearing about, oh, you jumping or conquering those mounds, which I fucking hate the terminology. Nobody conquers a mound. The mound tolerates you. And uh, it, <laughs> it's true. But uh, um, it, it's, it's, it's almost like the more, the more experience you have and the more daring the things you do, the more humility is earned. I think none of us are born with humility. We can like we're force fed humility through the years of doing dangerous stuff and just knowing that kind of like knowing your place again through that notion of acceptance, I think. And that is so ingrained in, in skiing and, 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 and mountaineering, but but I do have to say the difference that I see with base jumping is except if you're tapping into a highly technical environment with a, sh a small group of people that you fully know and trust which journey the people that you're going to go with when you're going to do something like that, right? And uh, uh, then you can, but I feel like when you can, like a more public kind of place of jumping, like again, the bridge or, or like a base jumping event or things like that, this is when I feel like almost, actually, I'm going to say it, yeah, I feel a little intimidated to, 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 to step in and things like that just because there's so much overbearing testosterone and ego <laughs> I don't know, maybe you have too much of a feminine side. <laughs> I think also too that there's a level of uh precision it's a precision sport, you know. Um it's uh, like we could equate it a little bit to archery or uh golfing. Like you're not gonna talk in someone's backswing. You you don't really want a True. bunch of noise, you know, while you're uh about to step off. So um, I think that that plays quite a bit into it. You know, that's like a, it's a very special moment when you have your toes over the edge and you're counting down and, uh, you know, it's not really a time when you're looking for a bunch of feedback from the people around you, uh, unless there's something horribly wrong, you know, and then, yeah. but I, I think that those are things that it's like, it's gradual, right? Like um, uh, the hike or the walk or whatever, the tram ride, um, I think that that's a moment when we can all be assessing our jumping partners and take it from uh, an individual sport and into team sport where we're really looking after each other going like, shit, Timmy's not really looking so good today. You know, like I can tell his brain waves and his breathing pattern are definitely not matching up, you know? Um, and I think it, that that is a moment where you're like, Hey, are you, are we good? Are you good? You know, like, and, uh, like, why don't we, um, you know, slow it down a little bit or, or, or maybe, are you sure this is the jump for today? You know, like, um, there are definitely moments where we're, should be looking after each other and, uh, maybe that should be happening before we're, you know, our toes are at the edge. I don't know. Just my I, thoughts. I feel on you that. love, you know, and it's an interesting difference though, between climbing and mountaineering and base jumping. For instance, like I was mentored by a free solo climb, uh, climber and, you know, when he saw me gripped on an edge, like he would, wouldn't hesitate to give me his narration of, you know, breathe, relax, focus on the moves, you know, and he was an incredibly experienced person and I had an incredible amount of respect for him. And so every time that he spoke, I knew that it was in my best interest. And it's very interesting to hear somebody like Matthias, who is unequivocally 
one of the most experienced people in our sport, say that even after the fact, even after somebody lands, he's still like apprehensive about approaching somebody about a correction. And I don't think he's alone. He's, you know, I've heard this from so many people that make the career at, uh, at teaching people how to base jump or their career as professional base jumpers, you know, that don't want to step in, don't want to step on toes, don't want to, you know, and it's like, man, how, how is that so vastly different from other sports? Yeah. You, I mean, yeah, you guys, I, I don't have the answer, uh, but you guys are touching on some super, super key stuff that, that should be, um, talked about and addressed more often, you know, but I think, you know, when, when you're talking about using the example of Timmy, not feeling good in the gondola, well, then you're also tapping into something where you have an established relationship that is most likely founded on trust. So it's somebody, you know, in that kind of situation, I, I won't hesitate, you know, uh, it's more, I think with, uh, being with a stranger on exit, you know, that's, that's, that's a different kind of thing. But, the, but I have to say, man, I, I yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been jumping for coming up on fourteen years now, and and I, man, the it's almost it's almost like philosophy. The more you know, the less you know. So now I just I don't even hesitate sometimes to even ask like advice to somebody who's been jumping for four or five years and they do something completely different than I do, but it's I really like what they're doing or the jumping style or, and and I yeah I don't hesitate to seek information because I think. Uh, that 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 really helps all of us in the long run, you know. But it's um, but it's different to seek information than to impose information on someone else. That's that's where I guess yeah, it's 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 strange. Uh, I I don't know. Again, I don't have the answer of why I'm uncomfortable doing so. But, yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard. There's a lot of factors there: empathy, um, interpersonal communication, expressing fear, vulnerability. I mean, these are all things that are extremely difficult to share with people. And, uh, you know, I can tell from my personal experience that I've failed many times with this, uh, trying to give someone advice or seeing all the signs that, you know, this person is going to be next on the list and uh, lashing out emotionally and even yelling at people at some points, you know, like... um, (laughs) I mean, I remember sometime like, you know, like yelling at somebody like, you know, like I was all fucking pissed off and I was just like unleashing all of the, uh, you know, the stress and the trauma that I had experienced, you know, around friends dying and them repeating it. And, and and I was, you know, acting in a selfish manner because I didn't want to relive that through their death. And, uh, and man, it's hard. It's really difficult for sure. It's, it's not, it's, it may be even one of the more difficult things that we have to do in our sport is, is, uh, is that kind of communication around risk with each other. Yeah. Well, and it's also because this so much of risk is personal as well too. And, and it's when you tap into the realm of personal, especially, you know, I don't know, I feel like especially in America, cause it's such like, it's almost like well, you're stepping into my private property here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, so let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit here because, um, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, the uppercomers that might be listening to this, want to be pro base jumpers or, or want to be pro skiers. Um, 
Can we talk a little bit about what it takes to be a pro and maybe some misconceptions that people might have about it and uh, your thoughts about the difference between an amateur and a pro? Ha, huh, well, that's a vast subject. And uh, I'm actually slowly, as I'm working on one book, it's 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 like, a, you know, once you open that can of worms, it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, working on one book and it's actually giving me a, an idea for another book that I want to write more on sports marketing down the road. But uh, but I, I think I actually worked on a series with uh, with GoDaddy on the, the, the business of being a pro athlete, athlete entrepreneurs. And Tony Hawk is in there giving his side of the story because this guy has achieved legend status, but he's gone through the ups and downs of the whole thing. You know, the, 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 the booming of skateboarding and the crash of it and still surviving it somehow. And, and I think a lot of those sports, once you want to tap into the level of yeah, professional. Uh, when you tap into the professional level, it's it's. I think there's a lot of similarities between different action sports because base jumping is just an action sport, right? Uh, the thing is, like, it doesn't have a governing body. It doesn't really have like a uh, you know a, a, an established frame of you know as as rich. I mean, there are competitions and things like that, right? But it's not as established as like the International Ski Federation and things like that, right? You know. So, uh, but yeah. So I guess if people are curious. Uh, Maybe watch that. It's a four-part series with GoDaddy called Go Forth. So I think that might answer some questions because we illustrate a lot of that. But I think, uh, yeah, in 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 general, so to, I mean, for me, again, like it's it's I'm mentally prepared and physically prepared to. I didn't know if it was gonna happen. You know, I didn't think it was gonna be a pro skier until he actually started getting sponsored and then getting some trips paid for and things like that. But he wasn't handed to me at all. You know, it took me then a while to, to build all that stuff up. But I really prepared myself, I think, mentally since I was nine years old. So it's not something you just like get recognized and get sponsors. I guess that's a misconception I like to break. It's like, it's not like you get sponsored. All of a sudden people roll out the red carpet for you and you do whatever you want. Hell no. You want to be a pro athlete at whatever thing you're trying to do with it, skiing or jumping or being a kayaker or whatever it is, a pro climber is be ready to hustle because all of it is just, you're hustling all the freaking time and you're going to have to be super, super professional. I just sent a spreadsheet to sponsors yesterday with the whole recap for the whole year, you know, and, and that's something that I learned through um, business school and then working marketing at ski resorts. And then I applied that to my career as a professional athlete and, and, because I realized that it's it's not it's not really any anything different, you know. And, and the difference between a pro and an amateur is that an amateur you you're keeping this as a hobby, you're doing that only as a weekend. As a pro, you're being paid to do this. You're paying your bills. Your livelihood depends on it. So if you want to have companies justify paying you, well, you got to make sure you give them their return on investment, so it makes sense in their business world, you know, to to justify the money that they're they're paying you so they can get their return on it as well. Um, but there are things that are super hard to quantify. For example, um, the main role of an athlete is to help build the, um, the, the brand strength of the label that you're endorsing. And brand strength, uh, and I got that from a book called A New Brand World from Scott Bedbury, who, uh, who was the advertising director of Nike uh, behind the original Just Do It campaign. And brand strength relies on two things relevance and resonance and so as an athlete you're helping build all that stuff but the brand strength doesn't necessarily translate into direct dollars right away you know a lot i think a lot of 
brands that want to work with athletes or, or athletes themselves to think that they're going to be like a sales rep pretty much. You know, oh, they, they sponsor me and then you'll be able to sell way more of this. It's like, well, it's way broader than this. You help you help build that story and that narrative and solidify the brand and really its position. And then that's invaluable in the long run. It's it's almost, it kind of sounds very esoterical, but it's kind of like the subject of, yeah, <laughs> of sports marketing. But how did I become pro? Well, um, I didn't think it was going to happen, you know, and, but I always, first of all, I dedicated my life to skiing, no matter what it was going to be. But I went to business school, you know, and first year of business school, my parents were like, okay, because I just wanted to be a skier. And they pulled me out of ski academy in the Alps and all this stuff. It was traumatic for me because it's like, no, this is what I want to do, you know, and and they were like, okay, do one year in business school, and if you don't want to pursue that, then you're on your own. And then figured out, I was like, okay, cool, I'll do that. In my head, I was like, okay, I'll do one year in business school and then get out of there, and then I'll just be a skier, you know, <laughs> and I'll prove to them that I can be successful at whatever I want to do because I put my heart, my whole soul, and whole being in this, you know. And uh, but then within six months of business school, I blew my knee skiing. <laughs> and then I was like, well, you know what? Actually, business school sounds pretty good. I think I'm going to stay in business school, <laughs> which was which was helpful. So I got, you know, I, I then I transferred to a university in Colorado called Fort Lewis College in Durango. And I went to school full-time while uh, working as a marketing intern for free at the ski area. And then they started paying my entry fee for free ride competitions. And then within three, and then doing pictures for them then I started getting pictures in magazines and things like that I had like a full page in uh it was skiing magazine at the time doing a backflip on a 50-foot cliff I was super proud of it you know got a couple covers things like that it was cool and um and then I yeah started you know getting trips paid for and I was sponsored head to toes with gear and but you know I couldn't make a living of skiing so it was really again Everything is a stepping stone. Just like you building your skills as a base jumper, right? You know, you, you go to the bridge and you getting PCA'd and then eventually then you can go handheld and then you're going to go stowed and then you'll do a gainer stowed and then last thing you know, you're starting to jump cliffs and then you work on your tracking and then you start, whatever, building your road towards wingsuiting or whatever it is, right? You know, everything is a stepping stone. That's exactly how it happened as a, as a pro athlete for me as just really climbed the ladder, you know, little by little and then... Uh, uh, but I always worked on the side so that whenever I started getting some money for skiing, because it wasn't that much. At first, the first checks I got for skiing were literally for like, I think, 200 bucks. You know, like you don't pay the bills with that. But, you know, 200 bucks might uh, pay for enough gas to go and do a photo shoot at that area because they just got a bunch of snow and there's a photographer that wants to go shoot with you. You know, so I started doing this every little every cent I got from skiing, I reinvested it in skiing and I just worked on the side to be able to pay my living expenses with. And I did that for a long time. And then, um, yeah, eventually I got to the point where you know, I started skydiving and base jumping on the side, met Shane McConkie. Back in the day, he kind of, you know, guided me on how to become a ski base jumper because I wanted to ski base since I was nine. And but then, you know, Shane was just the ski base jumper. He knew how to do it. So. I just kind of get yeah, pieced it little by little like that. And then um, then after that, you know, by then when I was base jumping, I already had my sponsors for skiing and I was getting, a, you know, not a ton of money, but, you know, I could make like a few thousand bucks a year with skiing and that would reinvest all again in skiing. And then um, I kind of was lucky. It was kind of like a slam dunk with my first ski base jump. It was the first ski base jump on Mount Hood. I opened a cliff there and he was my first ski base jump as well. But right there, the next day, I'm on Good Morning America and CNN. And because he had never been down over there, 
but it was also the year of the recession in 2008. So it doesn't translate into dollars right away. You know, it's not like I was on national TV 26 times in one year, but I didn't get a cent for it. <laughs> uh, and but I was like, that's OK. I'm just going to keep trucking. I'm not you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for the dedication to the to the craft and the sport. And eventually, if you do that dil diligently and you for me, I, I, I really kind of established myself by doing a lot of first. And that's really what helped me kind of solidify my presence in the ski world and with base jumping. But to be just a pro ski, uh, a pro base jumper, I think is super hard because I was able to, again, become more of a mountain athlete than just a base jumper or just a skier. And so I was able to roll in a lot of my sponsors from skiing into base jumping and, and then vice versa, right? So that's kind of how I did it. Um, Again, there's not one formula to, to do it, but I think the main thing is, yeah, don't wait for sponsors to, to pay for your trips or this and that. It's You're on a mission. You know what you want to do. Establish your goals and objectives as an, as an athlete. What are you trying to achieve? And these things are going to happen no matter what. Present that to companies. Hopefully, they want to be part of the adventure. And if they're not, well, these things are going to happen no matter what. It's just going to be a lot more difficult if you don't have people helping you, supporting you, at least with gear. But you're a man on a mission, and the mission the mission is gonna happen no matter what. And if you're a man on a mission long enough, people are gonna people are gonna join you on the mission. That's kind of how I did it. <laughs> Sorry, as a long monologue. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's good. You filled in a lot of details there. Uh, maybe I can uh, ask uh, one um, you know follow up question for the base jumper who has the dedication that you're talking about has developed the skills that you're talking about, uh, is interested in being a professional, what is the first step for that person to break into the game? Hmm. What should be their first measurable goal that they go after? Well, um, first measurable goal to go after. Well, I think it's it's. What, what do you mean by measurable goal? You're talking about you know financial or or, or or physical or or an accomplishment or what are you honestly pointing at with this question? Well, I'm asking like uh, you know there are a lot of people out there that are exceptionally good at what they do. You know they're exceptional athletes, but they might not have gone to business school or studied marketing like you did. And so breaking into the professional world still seems like a huge glass ceiling. Like they just keep hitting it. And no matter how good they get at their sport, they still don't attract the right people or they still don't get into the right conversations. And uh, they find themselves, you know, kind of disappointed with uh, their trajectory. And so I, I guess what I'm asking is like, you know, with uh, all of your expertise, like let's say that you are looking for the next sponsored athlete uh, in, you know, the next generation of base jumpers. Um, what would you say after they've developed the, the skills and after they've proved the dedication, uh, should they be driving towards? Well, I think it's, it's um, <clears throat> base jumping is such an odd sport, right? There's not a lot of participants in there. So most likely people don't necessarily know what's, you know, the technical side of it. You know, they might look at one wings you jump and, you know, they, they look at somebody jumping off the mushroom or somebody flying like, you know, a grand effect line in the Alps. And for them, it's like the same thing. They, you know, they don't necessarily know the difference. And so I think don't necessarily get wrapped up too much into the details, but I would say um, 
put things into perspective so it actually makes sense to them. And I think that's the hardest with our sport because it's so out there is to put it in, 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 in words and explaining it or presenting it in a way that actually makes sense. So who you are, what do you do, what have you done, what are you trying to accomplish as an athlete, why are you contacting the company that you want to work with, and then, um, yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think that's, that's really helpful to you know, write a freaking cover letter, organize your portfolio with pictures and videos, make a demo reel. That's what some actors do, you know? <laughs> and so people can see your work, showcase your work because you're selling a product or, or, and a service. So then explain why you're seeking a relationship with a brand, what you're hoping to achieve for them, who you are, where you come from, where you're trying to go and then uh, hopefully they'll get back to you. But if you, if you approach them in a very simple, professional way, I think it's just like anything, man. It's like applying for a job, because that's what you are. And everything is a job interview. That's the thing, everything is a job interview. Wh whoever you're talking to, whatever room you're leaving, you're gonna leave an impression there. And you know, I, I'm not, not necessarily an example for that because I've, I've gone naked or streaking into a lot of situations and have a loud, obnoxious laugh. But, <laughs> but, but, but on the line is, how do you want to be? How do you want to present yourself? And how do you want to be positioned? And is that put yourself into the shoes of the company? If you're there working at the company and a dude approaches you and is like, "Yeah, you should sponsor me because I'm a sick base jumper and uh, I just did this and that," it's like. The brand is going to be like, no, I mean, what? That doesn't mean anything to me, you know? And I, I have some base jumpers actually approach me sometimes like, well, I did this one jump and I would think that, you know, companies would call me and sponsor me. It's like, that's not how it works, man. Like, I have the privilege to have some companies call me now because I've done this for over 10 years, you know? But everything leading to that is like, you have to create your own opportunities, you know? And I, I was very fortunate to have some people mentor me, some pro skiers kind of, Help me, like you know, uh, redact like a, a cover letter to go and 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 contact the company, or you know, Shane gave me a lot of advice, you know, back in the day on the technical side of things, but even some on some of the personal side of things too, and and so, um, so that was that was very helpful, but it's also develop, you know, yeah, just present yourself in the way that it actually makes sense to these companies, and and don't, that's the thing, don't act entitled. I think that's the thing I see a lot with some any with skiing or surfing, surfing or or base jumping. Guys are like, oh man, I should I should be sponsored because of this and that, and then they're bitter because they're not getting sponsors. It's like, well, right there, your attitude is the reason why you're not. You know, brands don't want to work with you because you you you're acting you know completely entitled and and it's like. <laughs> It's like if a chick comes up to you, it's like, well, you should totally go out with me because I can do this and that. You're going to be like, get out of here. You know what I mean? It's the same thing. It's human relations in the end, you know. Approach them like you want to be, uh, as you would like to be approached. You know, I think that's the main thing. And, and yeah, don't be afraid to be to be human, but be, be professional. You know, quantify, organize what are you trying to do. This is what I'm trying to do. This is... Uh, why I would like to work with you guys and so I can accomplish this. And then, you know, and don't expect that you get paid right away. You know, the conversations that you have with these companies are all the time you got to open the door. They're not going to sign you a check right away. Like this comes with years of trust and, 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 and work that they can evaluate. At first, it's maybe get, get some gear and build that relationship, you know, uh, give them some feedback on the gear. You know, it's, it's 
a pro athlete is not just slapping on a logo and doing cool shit. A pro athlete is pretty much being like a multifaceted consultant for a brand. You're an advertising agency because you're doing a bunch of stuff with their logos and their gear that is going to help promote the gear, sure. But you're also uh, testing and some gear. You're, doing, you're helping them design things. You're also advising them sometimes on strategies for, for a marketing campaign. Like I literally had brands come up to me and like, okay, so this is what we're trying to accomplish. And, uh, but we want to show it this way and have something along those lines. Do you have a project that could fit this, this ad campaign? And then they pull up my computer and be like, actually, I have this idea of this thing in Colorado that I've been thinking about for four years and we could do this like that and position the product this way. And yeah, maybe it's because I went to business school and I've done marketing long enough to understand how it works, but it's just be professional, organize, organize your, your project and your thoughts and, and also make a list of companies that you want to work with. You know, don't just be the guy accepting any kind of sponsorships at any moment because you're going to sound desperate and it's going to be like, you got to organize also the brands that you want to work with so it makes sense you know it's like some some sponsors can have a correlation with another kind of sponsor for example you know like if you if you work with with two brands that are completely positioning themselves completely differently well the the message is going to be very conflicting so that's where you want to yeah make a list of what you're trying to accomplish as an athlete make a list of the brands that you want to work with and contact them but if they say no, it doesn't mean that they're not going to sponsor you maybe in two or three or four years. Maybe you're going to have to show them persistence and recontact the guy maybe in six months or a year. Like, hey, so I've been using your gear and I just went to the, this project and it was fantastic and I'm still eager to work with you guys. And, you know, and maybe the first year is not going to work. Second year is not going to work. Third year is not going to work. But by then they're going to know you, what you've done. And then the fourth year they're going to be like, well, actually, you know what? We're putting a little team together and uh we could get you on, you know, like we can only start with this, but at least you get your foot at the door. It's a, it's a long process, you know, but that's the thing. I guess the one advice I can give people is just like, don't expect anything to be handed to you just like that. It's like, you're going to have to spend the time to build this relationship with these people because they are people. That's what it is. In the end, they got to know you and you got to get to know them. And, and, and that takes time. <laughs> Man, I feel like we just got a master's crash course professional <laughs> athletics there like i was just rambling any, and i was like i hope you guys are not just like <laughs> no that was great and if anyone was, is curious i think you should rewind that section and listen to it a couple times because i can tell you as a sponsored athlete uh, he's just given so many good nuggets of truth in there that are going to help you along your pathway and and they've run counter to a lot of terrible advice that skydiving and other sports gives to up and comers expressly because those people don't want you in the game competing with them. And so like, you know, please take all of what Matthias just said to heart. It is a relationship game. Uh, and, uh, the development of those relationships is, is where you're going to get your sponsorships, not from the, uh, that, you know, fuck you pay me mentality. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. You just, you're so good at, at conceptualizing and summarizing things very potently. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> you give us a lot of work with, man. You, you got a lot of good knowledge. <laughs> well, a lot it's, of good it's, stuff here. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I don't know if it's uh, a lot of, of, of knowledge or anything, but I think it's just, you know, when you do something long enough, you just, you experience the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then hopefully you can draw some conclusions for yourself. <laughs> 
Yeah, on so many levels. Um, so to wrap it up here a bit, um, you know, we talked a lot about progression today. Um, what's um, what's in store for you next? So for me next, uh, well, ski season is right around the corner, and so I'm I'm prepping for that. Um, I'm training daily right now because I'm tapping more into the world of mountaineering and I'm I'm hiking with very, very heavy backpacks. You know, when I did Mont Blanc, I, I had a 45-pound backpack plus 10 pounds of ski gear. So I was climbing with 55 pounds, you know, and I train with a 53-pound kettlebell almost every day and every time I'm like, this is nothing because that's the weight of your backpack. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm training every day and I'm... Um, for the first time really in my career in the last two or three two or years or last year i'm really fine-tuning my weight and and my body fat content and almost diet and things like that too so i'm just right now training daily to stay within the range that i need to to be able to optimize my performance and being able to get to where i want to to where i need to get to be able to ski and ski base jump because i have a list of uh three or four first ski base jump uh, descents around Mont Blanc that are you know some of them are heavy ski mountaineering approaches and um, and and some serious ski lines that are you know some are 40 to 50 degrees for a long time but uh, now that I'm tapping into higher and higher altitude ski base jump we uh, it's hard to find cliffs that are vertical at that altitude so I'm jumping more and more of seracs which are ice walls and ice walls are really tricky to ski because the ice moves all the time and uh, there could be ice 50 feet before the edge of the cliff, even before the edge of the ice wall. And, and uh, the ice sometimes recedes and sometimes it's vertical, overhanging, and sometimes it's positive, you know. So a uh, lot of, lot of uh, tricky things to, to line up. So anyway, I got uh, three or four series first that I'm trying to do in the Alps. And then uh, uh, I'm working towards some, uh, some expedition as well in South America and... Um, I'm still trying to line up, uh, you know, funding and partners, actually, since we're talking about sponsors for some of those big expeditions because it's some serious stuff. Um, I'm, I, I don't want to give too much info away, but I'm starting to tap into, you know, Mont Blanc is 4,810 meters, uh, almost 5,000 meters, right? So I get a bunch of projects around the 4,000 meter range, and then I'm trying to tap into the six to 7,000 meter range uh, for ski base jumping, uh, which I don't know really if it's, fully doable yet but um you know it's it nobody has really done it yet so it's somebody has to be the first right so, <laughs> so that's 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 the route where i'm going and um um this and then uh as i just said previously i i just finally got more seriously into flying suits and got that etmd from squirrel and holy shit this thing is absolutely insane it is so intuitive so fast so smooth and so fun to fly that um it feels like skiing somebody actually i went to kapowson to train you know with matt and and, and zach carbo and all these guys and and uh one guy at the drop zone, working at the drop zone, gave me an advice because he's a skier too, flying wingsuits. And I was kind of like not as precise and a little squirrely, you know. And he was like, man, keep your shoulders flat. And he's like, think of your shoulders like you are a ski and your shoulders are your ski edges. And that's what you use to carve your lines. And all of a sudden, there was just a poof, 
mind open. <laughs> and so and so now I really don't want to fly a bunch of lines. Uh, I have some, some lines that I'm, you know, uh, establishing or making a list of things that I'm trying to accomplish, flying suits as well, because now it's not just skiing lines in the winter, it's flying lines in the summer as well. Uh, and uh, last, uh, completely unrelated, but last year, last December, I surfed my first uh, 10 meter wave. I got towed into a big wave on the Oregon coast. And so now it's going to be big wave season soon here in Oregon. Uh, the reef started breaking a little bit last week. And so uh, uh, I'm getting a new board shape to, uh, to start getting towed into the beach break when the, the big, big waves are breaking. And uh, so it's, uh, I'm getting a board with no foot straps, but seven to eight pounds of weight in there to be able to handle the speed a lot more and try to get into some heavier and deeper waves. So I'm going to do that just for fun. <laughs> and... Uh, and yeah, so uh, so big wave surfing, ski mountaineering, ski base jump, and flying some uh, some tracking lines, and maybe getting into a proper wingsuit late, later. But I love flying the ETMD because it's almost the best of both worlds. So that's what the near future looks like. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun and some big challenging projects at the same time. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. It's it's the the the. the we're talking about so much about frame of execution and error margin and things like that. And it's almost like the, uh, the frame in all those disciplines, whether it's toe surfing into a big wave or ski mountaineering or ski base jumping or wingsuit flying, like the frame of execution is very similar. The only thing that changes are the variable. And so you can, the 10,000 hour rule that applies to uh, mastering one discipline, then when you can do a cousin of a discipline, just like I consider base jumping almost like a, uh, a neighboring discipline of base of, of skiing, then the 10,000 hour rule can turn into a 5,000 hour rule. And then 5,000 hours can turn into 2,500 and then 2,500 can turn into a thousand. And so, cause there's so much risk assessment and situational analysis and methodology, uh, that you use, for example, in big wave surfing or toe surfing, cause I'm not paddling big waves, but, uh, that is so similar to yeah to to flying a line a wingsuit or ski base jumping something so that's the cool thing with all those sports is you develop such a thorough um, and acute methodology on approaching this this unforgiving situations that you can almost copy and paste that format into a different situation you just have to learn the variables <laughs> learning how to learn is a big part of it ah yeah you're right you're right God damn, you guys are good at summarizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, man. Um, this has been uh, an awesome conversation and uh, super happy to have made this happen. Um, Matt, do you have any other questions uh, before we, uh, we turn it over? Yeah, I'd be remiss in not uh, doing this because uh, we have to ask uh, every, every guest that comes on the show. Um, and I've, I've got one other follow-up after this, so you know, strap in. They're, they're going to be uh, serious ones. So the first one we ask everyone is, are you scared of dying? You know, you obviously are pushing the limits in several categories in sports where there are a lot of ghosts around the campfire. Ah, um, I've accepted death a long time ago, uh, which is not necessarily answering if I'm afraid of dying or not. Uh, I think when the time will come, there will be a certain kind of anxiety uh, leading to it. But I think uh, there's not really anything special about dying, but there's something special about living because millions of people have died before us. It's just a natural progression. And so I think uh, for me, I've, again, I think that comes with a level of acceptance. I, I don't want to die, 
while uh, I'm not necessarily scared, uh, truly afraid of dying, uh, I'm still not ready, if that makes sense. But uh, but I but I I fully accepted my mortality. So there's a sense of liberation that comes with it. I guess uh, I do listen to a lot of black metal and death metal and all this stuff, so that helps a lot. <laughs> and Danzig's got a good song, you know, because sometimes you uh, get a song called Tired of Being Alive. And I think a lot of us sometimes are, it doesn't mean that you're suicidal and you want to end it, but there's some days when you're just like, God damn, I'm tired of being alive. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> well, that's a good answer. Um, and the next one comes from uh, a sensitive topic that we uh, touched on earlier and uh, ties back in the beginning of the podcast, really. And so I want to go back to uh, your sister and uh, her suicide and ask you, do you view that act as a selfish act? Ah, that's a very interesting question. Um, just be, Just like base jumping, there, there's different meaning or ethos or reasons that you base jump. There's different reasons or, 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 or ways to, to commit suicide, right? And I think suicide can be an act of desperation. It could be an act of rebellion. But I actually see that suicide could be also uh, an act of enlightenment and, uh, and an act of acute awareness. And... Uh, Whenever I hear of somebody committing suicide, the first thing I think is, what did they know that we didn't? And, and I think that's, that's the first thing I thought about when I heard of Anthony Bourdain, for example, committing suicide. I'm like, this guy lived it up. Like, he did it all. You know, was, you know, pretty much like the rock star of cooking and wrote books, had an amazing TV show, amazing personality, was the, the Johnny Rotten of the kitchen world. And, and he still ended his life. Why did he know that we didn't? And so I think it goes beyond, you know, selfishness. But the other thing to, to take into account, in my opinion, is what can you truly hope for in life? And I think there's only two things. First one is to have a good life. And the second one is to have a good death. Whatever that means to you. It's not, it's not for anybody else to judge. And, and so if if committing suicide is having a good death for you then more power to you maybe it is viewed as selfish but at the same time it's your life it's your death you're the one in charge you can write your own story however you want and you can end your story however you want that's pretty much what hunter s thompson did man i like that you can write your story however you like you can end your story however you like powerful thanks <laughs> thanks man um with that i think this is a beautiful time to, to say um goodbye and um thanks for coming on and let's do it again this this was a great conversation and always open to chatting with you bud uh, we i'm sorry we missed each other last time when you were in france but um let's uh, let's make it happen next time you're around absolutely man i should be back in uh, march uh, and uh, I get some some heavy ski stuff to to do, but I'm gonna bring uh, I'll bring my ETMD with me too, so maybe we can get a couple flights together. So. All right, sounds like a plan. <laughs> awesome, guys! Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, our okay. pleasure. Well, bye bye. Awesome. Cheers. Bye. Well, as expected, that didn't disappoint. 
you know, we really didn't leave any stone unturned and he was uh, ready with his answers. You know, like I know him as a guy who's just goofy and has way too much energy. And, uh, you know, when you throw those questions his way, he's, uh, he's ready to go deep. What'd you think, Matt? I love that conversation. He did not shy away from a single question. And, uh, I think we got a lot of honest answers to a lot of questions that, are beneficial to everybody. I mean, we got basically a crash course in what it is to be a professional athlete. We dug into uh, personal tragedies and loss. Uh, we got an incredible amount uh, on his uh, movie, Super Frenchie, which again, like great watch. Go and check it out. Uh, streaming on many platforms and superfrenchy.com. Yeah, super talented skier too. Really uh, some some really nice clips in there. And it was really fun to see some of our friends commenting on him too, which was uh, an added bonus for sure. And uh, yeah, so I hope you all enjoyed it and uh, see you on the next one.